0: This year the drums released an excellent new album called Brutalism and it was great getting to talk to its creator Johnny Pierce about some of the inspiration behind his latest LP under the drums moniker but also just to get to know him better in general. Um, I've known Johnny socially for probably almost a decade now. We have quite a few mutual friends, but we'd never spend any one on one time together, so I loved doing that for episode thirty of LSQ. I'm Jenny LSQ, by the way. Also, um from my archive, I found something with the Raconteurs who are back with new music just recently. Um and as I'm getting ready to head to Lollapalooza, I wanted to play something from the Lala archive. so that's farther into the episode. Where this conversation with Johnny begins is with him talking about kind of a rough year he's had leading up to the present day, where he finds himself beginning to get familiar with the concept of joy. Let's listen.
1: And I was just, yeah, it was probably the lowest point of my adult life. I just felt like, you know, I threw myself into partying harder than I ever had the point where I just I really felt like a shell of a human <laughs> by the
0: end oh my god where you're like now you're like listen I can reference back to parting experience I'm better at it now I'm going <laughs> yeah. harder for it now I'm a grown person yeah exactly I, I'm gonna Dangerous. do this with intention yeah exactly I kind of
1: did do it with intention I mean it was like you know it's the classic case of just not wanting to feel anything so I after a while it just I really did feel like uh, like I had a rock bottom experience, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry. Yeah, it was that like sucks. crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know what? It's a it's a it's a culmination. It's sort of like ten, you know, like ten years of well, an entire lifetime of like not really making space and time for myself to get to know myself to understand who i am Mm. to understand what it is i actually want out of this life and how to get it you know i was just my whole life i've like romanticized pain and confusion and i would have this idea that like to be in pain is part of the experience of being an artist Mm. and so i would i'd throw it on that you know oh but i'm an artist i'm supposed to be feeling really depressed like and I, and I use that for my art, you know, and I do, you know, like my, all my favorite art is like birthed out of hardship or struggle or pain or anger or, you know, so like I'm in movies and art and you know, books and music. It's always, I'm always drawn towards sadness, but right now, like moving back to LA after I've sort of. Taken a couple of years of doing therapy for the first time and taking myself seriously, backing off drugs and alcohol a little bit, and just trying to be more selective with who I hang out with and who I don't hang out with. And it's this time around being in LA is a different experience. You know, like I'm setting up patterns that feel like healthy and like connect me to this new thing. Mm. called joy like that I I really truly it feels exotic to me you know like and it's not all the time like today I feel a little gloomy I feel sadness I don't understand why but it's not this like heavy endless weight like an ocean on top of me mm. and I, I just, sometimes you have to get practical in order to help yourself and like for me practicality has always gone against being an artist
0: yeah you know
1: like i'm like those two things don't go together like logic and artistry but i'm finding out that like for me like this new record feels it's like it's one that i'm proud of it's one that i i really love and i think it's some of my best like i'm a big pop song person and I, i think it's it's the closest out of all my records to kind of what I want to be making. And so, and I made it in a time where I was being careful about literally like the food I ate to the people I hung out with to, mm-hmm. you know, where I was living and I cut down on my travel. and. All I mean, stuff.
0: it's interesting because it brings up the question of like, what is inspiration? You know, their classic question of like, As a songwriter or an artist, does one require, yeah, sadness and darkness as a source of inspiration? And, you know, songwriters who are known for melancholy work are always asked if if their personal lives take a happy, seemingly happy turn, like, well, where are you going to get your inspiration from now if you're not sad anymore? Oh, believe me. But it's like, I'm guessing that the experience of therapy and really getting granular with like assessing things you're doing from one day to the next, like bring some clarity to the idea of like, that's not where inspiration comes from. You know, inspiration doesn't, I don't think, I think like inspiration is mysterious. And to assume you knew that it came from this one thing, just cause that's what you coincided with it before is maybe oversimplifying yeah. it or something. I
1: think, yeah, I think everything is so much more nuanced than, than we think it is. You know, it's life isn't so rigid and, Believe me, something I've learned is that if you want to write a sad song and you and you just look for sadness, you'll always find it. <laughs> There's <laughs> never no gonna shortage. be a day where you're gonna wake up and be like, I just can't figure out how to get near sadness. Like, in my personal experience, it's always like right there next to me. It's what I know the most, but through taking a little bit better care of myself. Like I know how to put it on the shelf now when I need to, you know. Yeah. And that's like so powerful to me that it's not this all-consuming thing, and I and I can I can kind of take it off the shelf if I want to, and it's right there and it's genuine and it's real. Um, and then I guess like what I've learned now is like at, on the same the same token, joy is and happiness is kind of always there if you're if you're serious about finding it. You yeah, know? yeah. It might be harder to grasp right away, but... Um, so I guess I just feel more centered and balanced altogether. And, I mean, who knew, like, the one thing I was afraid of? Because you know, I truly had those thoughts, like, I'll never be able to write a song if I, like, get better. Mm. Like, I won't be able to do anything that's going to connect to anyone because who wants to hear, like, happy birthday, you know? Like, right. So that was a real fear of mine, but it's worked out to to be the greatest gift, truly, for me.
0: It's interesting, too, because it's not like, I i mean, I don't think people associate your music with being sad music uh, necessarily. I Definitely certainly, not face value. You know? Yeah. So did the sort of urge to make music or, or try to play music, you know, as a kid coincide with an awareness of needing an outlet for, you know, for sadness? Where Do those two things come together?
1: Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was all of my songs since I was very young have always been sad, you know? I've never written a, a happy song. And so it's just something that I think
0: happened very naturally. Right. But when did you first start writing songs? Oh, God.
1: Um... 13, 12 or 13. My father is a minister of a crazy born-again, speaking-in-tongues church. And he he had an old sequential circuit synthesizer. And then he, digital synths became all the rage. So the church upgraded and...
0: Got rid of the And I the got cool one, the yeah. old
1: analog synthesizer, um, which was like worthless. You could sell it for 50 bucks at a pawn shop at the time. Did you know
0: how to play piano? No, no,
1: no. All of my brothers and sisters, they all played everything. And, uh, you know, because there was a worship team in the church. And so they were all really involved with that. A team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, our family ran this big, and it was a big church. Like, it was one of those, like, super churches of upstate New York. Like, wow. What's uh, a worship team, though? Oh, it's just like, well, it's just, it's this way of getting the young people into the church so there's different types of worship teams but like my brother played guitar and my sister played or my sisters would sing backups and my other brother would play the drums my other brother would play the piano and so you basically had a band on stage right and they would try to kind of like modernize the sound and have like guitar solos and stuff it's happening all over the place wow so so there it's
0: like it's a it's musical evangelism. It is. Instead of being called a band, it's called a worship team because worship it's... Team. because it's. They might even call it a band now. Just wow. To like be, a worship team. Uh, I like are. that, though. It's almost like you need numbers, you wear jerseys, <laughs> yeah. you're there to win. We're here to win. Well, they are Your here souls. to win. They are. They are to save. Um, so you got the cool old analog synthesizer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it had it happened to have like an onboard sequencer where I could actually, you know, set up entire songs. Uh, on the synth so I would just fiddle around and like figure things out I didn't have a manual and and then I, w- I would just record everything onto uh,
0: like a four-track tape um, and what were you I mean what would you have been listening to at that time or what were the thing what did you think what did you think your music should sound like at that, at that mm. time? just whatever you could figure out on this synthesizer
1: well I was sneaking in a bunch of stuff um, you know, go right?
0: To- you are not allowed to listen to secular music. Oh no! Oh
1: no! No, not even instrumental. My, you know, I would say, "Mom, it's instrumental," and she'd say, "Well, we don't know. Maybe the person made it as like for worship to Satan. We don't know. You okay. know, like so. Right, it's like right. crazy ultimate stuff. level. And at the time, I couldn't say, "Go Google it." You know, so <laughs> <laughs> so you know, um, I would go to the. <laughs>
0: Does Kenny G worship Satan? <laughs> exactly. Google. Not that we know of. <laughs>
1: he might. um I was listening to. I kind of grew up listening to like elect, um, like electronic Christian music. Yeah, so it's kind of weird niche thing. Yeah, there was a band specifically called Joy Electric. They were on Tooth and Nail Records. Okay, and Tooth and Nail was like the farthest left of center that you could kind of be in and still fall under the Christian umbrella. Right. You know? So it was still safe, but they weren't really singing about God. They were kind of, they were like right on the edge. It was like punk
0: pop. It was, right, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And then they had this band, Joy Electric, which was like, I think it was just like the guy who, Brandon Ebel was his name, who owned the label. I think it was just like his his pet project or his like baby. Right. And so, so it was just weird. I think they sold like three records, you know, like no one cared. But it actually happened to be um, that band was my favorite band all through my teenage years. And even into my early adulthood, even as I, like, started listening to The Smiths and right. discovered Bjork and, you know, just... You, like,
0: genuine, right, you, was a, you genuinely still connect with that as having been a music I do. you loved. And you weren't even hearing just, like, the radio. There was no popular music. No. You were no exposure to popular music.
1: No exposure to popular music. Wow. No Nothing. Actually, so my start in, like, in my life... Lightning strikes, and I don't know exactly how it happens or why. Sometimes I think my greatest talent isn't actually like songwriting, but it's like just being in the right place at the right time with the right thing to offer to the right person. Like that happens to me, Mm -hmm. and in a way that's like seems made up. Like, for instance, so I'm like listening to like all these bands. I really fell in love with electronica music out of the UK, like Ronnie Sides' drum and bass and jungle and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, sticking it down in my pants and running upstairs to my bedroom and putting headphones on and listening and then my parents find it make me throw this stuff in the garbage and I just go back out, buy it again, the cycle continues. Yeah. But I'm really falling in love with music, broadcast and Bell and Sebastian and just kind of like Yeah. All of this stuff was like really inspiring to me. And so I, with this same synthesizer, I had accumulated about 18 like, demos or songs you know, on my own. I would work at a, a hotel and do laundry in the back room, folding towels and sheets and the graveyard shift. And then I'd finish, and I would bring my synth with me. I'd go out to my car, bring it in, and I would sit there and record. So my publishing company is called Laundry Boy Music today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm like... 18 or 19 i've come out to my parents it's a really difficult time i'm going through conversion therapy like really gnarly stuff so like back to your original question like music for me was like it was a place to express sadness but it was like an escape route you know so you know i'm i'm i have these 18 songs My parents decide to get the internet and it's dial-up. I'm really aging myself here. (laughs) Oh my God, I never do that. I'm usually careful about that. (sighs) (laughs) Exactly. So the deal was like, you guys can have internet, but I need your passwords and logins for your emails and all that. So my parents would regularly check to make sure we weren't doing anything screwy. Well, I was always the one that was a little more daring because I needed to be daring. I needed to like figure out how to get out of there and like thrive. You and know? just to
0: pause for a second, you're one of how many kids?
1: Of six. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Brood. Yeah. A large brood. Christian family. Yeah. yeah. So I sneak down the stairs one night. I dial into a Yahoo chat room. And Yahoo chat was kind of a new thing. And it, there were like 10 categories. And one of them was just like gay chat. You know? So I go into gay chat. And my, I'm trembling because... My father could wake up any moment. Yeah. And even if even if he wouldn't, it's it just the idea I still had in my heart that it was probably wrong to be doing this. So I was also like terrified and like right. worried like, like grandma but in heaven is looking down at me. And, and also
0: I'm guessing just sort of what's it gonna be like yeah, in there? Oh, totally God.
1: exotic <laughs> and like new and scary. So the first guy that says hello to me says hey hey, so what's up what do you do and I said oh well, I'm a recording artist you know I just kind of bullshitted I was working at a blimpy sub shop at the time as well
0: a sandwich uh, artist and a recording artist and
1: a laundry boy uh, and so I I sent he asked for um, I don't even think there were mp3s it was like a win file or something <laughs> <laughs> so I sent him a win file of a song and he said "Oh, can you send me another one so I sent him another one and then he asked for a photo, and I sent him a photo, and he said, okay, um, let's put this gay chat thing aside. Like, I'm a music manager in New York, and I love these songs, and I wow. love how you look. He's like, can you come down tomorrow? Turns out this guy is, like, the first guy to discover the Strokes, and he's this person who really um, was somewhat influential, like, during that wow. whole era. okay. So I, I drive down the next day. Don't tell anyone. I knock on his door. He was actually living in Hoboken at the time, 611 Adams Street. I still remember the address. And he brings me in and brings me into the studio inside of his apartment. He has this huge loft. And he closes the door and locks it and says, okay, first things first. Like the gay thing, that can't be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had like a fiance. Right. Like... So, yeah, Yeah. it's like, so I'm going to get you a record deal in in a year. Like, I'm going to get you on a major label. And, like, six months later, I signed to Columbia Records with these demos that I had written in my bedroom.
0: Wow, I didn't... I mean, I knew that you were playing shows, like, um, kind of immediately upon moving to New York. Yeah. And and that it's, you know, obviously that time...
1: Yeah, at the time it was, like, I think, like, Hot Hot Heat and Mm. Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were, like, right in their big prime and... The strokes even were still just like, so I made a record with a producer who um, wasn't the right fit for me and put out a single the band was called Elkland and you know, a few kids like the Misshapes kids in New York loved the first single. So I was kind of like in a underground fashion-y moment for a second. The rest of the world never heard the song. I don't think like no one cared and the, record was or then I was dropped and I <clears throat> was bummed you know like I was really bummed because I I didn't look at this I didn't really look at that band as as being so much important to me in in an um, artistic sense as it was it's still like my way to get as far away as possible from
3: my past
1: right you know right like that was like and so being let off the label it wasn't like I've never had a drive to be like rich or famous uh, it's I've always been running you know my whole life, and I think I still am in a way like I'm getting better at it but
0: but it must have felt like I mean a sh- kind of massive shift to go from living with your family going through fucking conversion therapy I mean did you just sort of say like okay, after this person from the chat room was like come to did you just sort of say to your family, like, I'm gone, I'm out of here now? Or how did that work? Yeah.
1: I mean, I went to New York, and upon my first trip, I met a bunch of people. Some of them were gay, and they were the first gay people I'd ever had exposure to in my life. Um, one of them was a partner, with, like a business partner, with this manager who I met with. And he sort of took me under his wing. He had a loft in Tribeca. He let me stay there, and I just very quickly kind of had a community around me. Um, it felt like the city was like, come to me, you know? I okay. had a very different experience. You hear a lot of people like crowbarring their way into the city, and it's just impossible. And It was the opposite for me. Like, it, it couldn't have happened any other
0: way. Were you the way. happy then? Did you feel happy to be like to have found a world that seemed to make sense?
1: Well, I was relieved, but I still... It seemed like I had got come so far. I started dating this fashion photographer, and you know, I was staying at the Four Seasons in Paris for a month with him, like things like that. Yeah, it like, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> it was really nice. But what I what I see now when I look back is like, it, it was so great on one hand because it was so far away from from the pain of the past, and but I still I wasn't able to fully enjoy it because there was just such a huge part of my heart that. Wanted to somehow, you know, my parents tried to convert me. I, my whole life I've been trying to convert them, you right, know, right? And so I would enjoy these experiences, but I would want to tell them all about it. I would want them to be happy for me. I would want them to, and you know, I wanted so much, um, but it's just stuff that they weren't willing to give, you know. So even in, you know, I went and started working retail and um, after the band, and it was I worked a few different places, and it was really depressing for me, obviously, you know I had kind of had that moment, and then I was like, uh, and you know I would be putting shoes on the feet of people who like worked at the record label, and it would just be like this weird thing, and it was like you know humiliating and um, but I just figured, okay, that was my one shot you know and i was I was depressed and I was parting a lot, and I got into sort of the New York downtown scene a little bit started throwing some parties and stuff but it wasn't good for me and then after a couple of years of working retail drew elliott who's creative director of paper you know drew yeah, yeah you know droopsie.
0: Drew. yeah droopsie <laughs>
1: uh, he holler droopsie holler um i i owe so much to him because he you know he's a, he's a straight shooter when he needs to be you know and um he called me while i was at work Uh, At Y3 on 13th Street Meatpacking District and he said Johnny I don't care what anyone says I loved the record you put out I think you're wildly talented and you're wasting your life working retail and you need to leave New York City because you're partying too much you need to go anywhere else don't be in New York City create something wonderful and then bring it back wow yeah. Two weeks later, I had moved out of my apartment. I had Jacob from, uh, who was eventually in the drums with me, uh, was living in Florida at the time. He jumped in a car and drove up in a white minivan and picked me up on Ten Ike Street in Brooklyn, and um, we drove down together. And you know, that next day we started making music, and we didn't really know what it was going to be or who it was who it was for, or maybe it was just for us. I don't know. Um, but then this this lightning strikes moment happens again, where I I write "Let's Go Surfing," I write "Done by the Water," a couple other tracks. I think I have a three or four tracks, and I put it up on MySpace. So a little internet update, we're to MySpace era now, <laughs> Toppy uh, from Gay Chat to MySpace, <laughs> still old. <laughs> Either way, um, and about a week later, we uh, we get a message on MySpace from someone who had a very small label out of Brooklyn called 27 records. And he said, I love this. I want to put, uh, do you have any more songs? We said, yeah, well, we have almost a whole album's worth. Let's put it out. And before, and so we were like, wow. And he's like, I want to bring you up and I want you guys to play shows. And we started getting offers from all these different venues in New York city, come play these shows, come play these shows. And we didn't have an agent or a manager or PR nothing. So it was just this really organic thing, and but we were still living down in in uh, in Florida, but making trips up up into Brooklyn and um and I, and then one day I checked MySpace again and there was a message from someone who was in our Island Records in the UK. He said, "You're not going to believe this. I just woke up this morning and I thought I'm going to search for bands in Florida." Which I didn't know if that I don't know if that's an option on MySpace, but wow. and so, you know, had I moved to Pennsylvania, maybe this wouldn't have happened. I don't right, know. Right, right. So it's like, you know, a few months later we signed with Island and my life changed. I was, you know, being on the cover of Enemy a bunch of times right, in one year and right. BBC playing us and so things in Europe and the UK just started taking off and slowly in America. And I was just sitting there still just like you know, it's it. I feel so lucky, and I also like wish to God that I was more conscious and and focused more on myself, uh, like in that time, and able to enjoy all of that. Because still, when I when I think back on those years, I I feel like I was a ghost of a person. Like mm. I I don't have vivid amazing memories. Like, yeah. I feel I can tap into that lostness. Right. That, that, that sort I of had. disassociation. The total yeah. disassociation with everything and never yeah. celebrating when something wonderful would happen. Right. You know? Like, Oh, Florence wants you to do the European tour. Okay, cool. Let's do it. But never allowing myself to, to feel that joy.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I wonder if now that you've written a lot more music since then, cause it sounds like to me, you know, every time you set about to just cloister yourself and write music instinctively, good stuff came out, and then you were surprised when it did well without much effort on your part, and so then you spent the rest of the time reacting to being surprised.
1: You're very intuitive, because I would say to my Ben Mait all the time, like, I feel like I'm cheating. Like, I feel like we're cheating somehow. I just felt like it... Because I had a lot of friends who were in bands who work really hard and are really talented, write beautiful music, and it just doesn't happen. So for it to happen to me once and then twice, it just felt like... And the songs oozed out. It wasn't this two-year labor-intensive process. It just happened. And so... I think that was another part of right. it. I it's think like classic right. imposter
0: syndrome. Absolutely. I, you know. And
1: we were, I mean, to be fair, like, we were a polarizing band and we still are. Like, there was an imposter, you know, there were rumors that we were a manufactured Disney indie band, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I think Pitchfork, like, you know, they didn't say that that's what we were, but they referenced that that was something that was... Buzzing in the press is that we were this made-up thing, like four kind of cute guys, like from Florida, singing about surf, like you know, connected the funny dots. That, it's
0: funny that if you think about now versus then, because yeah, like we were saying earlier, it was just like a big indie, just like peak indie, what like peak 2008, India. 2009, yeah. where like you know, the peak, Brooklyn sound. Yeah, and you can't like people cared what pitchfork said or something yeah. you know whereas now like the idea that something that's more that seems more like a pop thing in the indie world would people people would be slobbering over that
3: you know na- in
0: 2019 something that was just like oh this feels like a pop thing in our world we like yay we love that it's crazy things changed things can change so fast or oh i mean i know decades a long time but but i mean now that you as i was i guess what going back to the earlier questions, like now that you've written a lot of songs and you when you're working on music I mean I wonder if you are you know are aware now looking back at the earliest songs you wrote and the song and the most recent ones like is there a feeling that you have when you're on to something good that back then it was just the only times you'd done it and you didn't realize how good it was like now do you know sort of how to kind of get yourself in a place where there's a sense of like, no, this is, this is, this is my good stuff here. I'm doing my good stuff. I
1: wish I could say yes. I mean, I I think every day is, is different. Every experience is different. There's times where I've felt so sure about something and it falls on deaf ears or I listen again in a month and I'm like, what was I thinking? Mm. Um, but I think overall I, I have a pretty good sense of what's good and, and to be honest, I'll just be really transparent. Like, I'm at the point now where I feel like, like when the drum started, we were influenced by a bunch of stuff. Like, there was a lot of, like, Swedish indie pop happening, like JJ and the mm-hmm. Tough Alliance and, like, the Labrador Records stuff. Um, we were really into that, and so we tried to do that, and we landed somewhere else, and suddenly we're the, we were this, like, surfy thing. It was sort of by an accident. And I dug into that sound, you know, because people—it was something that people wanted. I don't know; it was just right. like the seemed thing.
0: to be working, yeah. And it happened. To,
1: it happened like when it was like there were bands like with the name Beach and Surf and all right. Beach House and Beach Fossils, and, and right. it just went on and on it and yeah. on.
0: Waves, waves, and, exactly. Yeah,
1: um, even Best Coast kind yeah. of has that vibe. So like. Uh, I didn't know that was happening. I wasn't listening to any of that stuff. I was really, like, in my own, like, weird world. So, and that goes back to, like, how I said before. Like, sometimes I just, like, innately have the right thing to offer.
0: At the moment, right. Without,
1: yeah, kind of being green about it. So, um, anyway, so suddenly we're dubbed this, like, like the new, like, Beach Boys meets Joy Division sort of thing. And I'm like, okay, that's our identity. So I really dug into that thing. And I think through the years um I've been ever so slightly and ever so slowly kind of letting go of that a little bit whilst you know opening and making space for you know I think it's important for me to to stay modern and look towards the future and not be elbows out about my work and like hold on to the past. I think it's sort of a death sentence at this point. Like for a band like me, if I was just like 10 surf records, you know, like yeah. it's just, I can't do that. And yeah. it'd be boring no one for wants me. That. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants that. And so I've actually been relying more on people that I have some people in my life who I think really have their ear to the ground in a way that maybe I don't. Um, sometimes I go like months without listening to music. I just, I just, Have a a kind of a quiet existence. There's music in the bathroom right now, but if you weren't here, I wouldn't have it on probably. (laughs) Right, right. So I just, I like, I bring people in who I think have great taste and who I trust and who I have a
0: connection with, and we make music together now. So tell me about how that worked on the new album on Brutalism.
1: Yeah, so I have a drummer named Brian who's just. He shares my love for drum and bass and techno and house music. Um, and but then he also loves bands, you know, like so. We usually it's like one or the other, like people like love bands and they're just like have no space for techno or the other way around. We both really love kind of everything if it's good, it's good. That's kind of what we go by. And so I throw ideas at him, he throws them back at me, and we wrote this record together, you know, like it was a really kind of an equal split and that's the first time i've done that since having uh ex band members you know right and And what
0: would you say though that's that you know sonically is is sort of the you what you were going for what's intriguing uh, what's intriguing to you nowadays musically
1: so my original demos when i was a kid that got me that record deal with columbia those were pop songs those were like straight up i mean if you listen to them now they probably sound weird and like Artie and left of center because they were they were abstract in a sense but they were pop songs they had big melodic hooks and so without being able to really understand why from a very young age I was really drawn to like a chorus that would just swoop you up you know and like take you somewhere else and because the drums became sort of this indie surfy thing and it was at the time where like being straight up in your face like snail mail her face is on the cover of her album now (laughs) That would not have flown in that era. <laughs> I remember, like Caroline from Chairlift, gave her like, she did some big interview, I think, with Pitchfork, like her farewell interview, right. and she was like, "I wish I could have like," I'm paraphrasing, right. "I wish I could have been more of like, hi, it's I'm me. the lead singer, yeah, but me. we had to hide behind everything, and it because it was that animal collective, thing yeah, very,
0: like yeah, very, uh, non-anti-pop yeah, very abstract, non anti-pop, anti-pop, yeah.
1: So I think." This is, in a way, it's a, a return to form for me, or it's a way of finally putting out a record that's a bit more pop-centric. And um, in order to do that, in a way, I felt like legitimized it. I wanted great production. And so we brought in Chris Cody, and we brought in Sonny De Perry And um, so we had an, a great engineer. We had a great... Um, a sound engineer and mixing engineer. And both of them really added a lot of production value. Like when we turned this record over to Chris Cody, he was so excited about it. And I turned over records to him before where he's passed. (laughs) Um, So I felt like we were kind of onto something and everyone was excited about the songs. And then Chris took this stuff. And I mean, I just couldn't believe when he would send us a mix back it just felt like the song had blossomed like fully in like another 100%. Right. It was just wild.
0: Would you say that now it does, you know, it sounds like you're saying that you still feel kind of a little nebulous about just like, where am I? Am I floating a little bit? But, um, you know, you had put out an album under your own name and there had been personnel shifts in the drums and now here we are, you're at a more... Personnel
1: shifts is like the most wonderful way I've ever heard that described.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's what, you know, that, but that's that's, what in it is. retrospect, that's a fair way of, of describing it, right? Yeah. And it may sound nice. like the drums is obviously a multi-person band, but like the drums is Johnny Pierce. That's yeah. your, I'm the drums. Right. The drums is just like the weekend. Is, right. You're the weekend, I'm yes. the drums yes. or whatever. Yeah. And um, I would imagine that gives you some sense of focus and clarity that just like wherever I go, I am me and I am the drums too and it's not just stumbling around like I hope I'm still the drums it's like
1: (laughs) yeah like I do feel like I have a better handle on on all of that yeah um but that all it's all a reflection of taking myself more seriously you know and just making better decisions for myself that help me feel centered like every morning I go for a hike just by myself just to center myself sounds very cliche la but it's really helped me you know um little just little things like that you know like when i wake up i read a chapter or half a chapter out of a book before i get on my phone and just little things that i've learned like i do have to be practical sometimes in order to not feel terrible
0: right well i get you yeah, prioritizing <laughs> happiness as an end, un, end unto itself not like is I'll like, get a weird, to it is like a weird it's like a weird adulthood thing to like reach where you're just like why would I want to be feel horrible all the time if I could find ways to not feel horrible to not feel
1: horrible that aren't going
0: to kill me prematurely necessarily
1: I think well yeah exactly necessarily (laughs) well I think my thing is just I still I still do have that fear that like by not partaking in the wild side of life so to speak that I'm Living almost like this, this, like, like a thinner life, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like one without as much richness of, of just like experiences. And, you know, maybe it's fun to order Coke at 2 a.m. and just see where the night takes me, you know, like that was my standard for years, you know. And, um, and sometimes I get that fear that just like playing it safe is like, oh my God, is this, am I actually like, is just like a death sentence in a way. And so, so far that hasn't been my experience, but I still do carry around that fear a little bit, you know?
0: Well, that's the thing to go back to your point earlier about worrying about things, not having the highs and lows. It's like, you don't have to, life will give it to you. You don't have <laughs> exactly. to make it yourself. Really life will point. always give you highs and lows that you weren't asking for. Absolutely. And so enjoy the in-between, right. you know?
1: Like capitalize on it. Like
0: there's nothing wrong with boredom.
1: Yeah. You say that, but it's really, <laughs> really hard for me. It's really hard for me because boredom equals like facing myself. Right, you know, That's the hardest thing for me. I've been running, you know, I like I'm running for my path. I'm really like in a way
0: running from myself. And so I'm just now like, I think doing, I think collaborating with other songwriters though is probably going to be good because I mean, in other ways, in ways other than the obvious ways, because maybe that shows you some of, by putting yourself with new people in a creative context repeatedly it kind of shows you some of who you are like where you're just like this is what i bring this is who i am this is how people see me this is who i want to be seen
1: absolutely you know yeah that's god um you've done an interview before i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's true like going into these sessions i've been working on like some synth pop stuff, but mostly like hip hop and trap. Like I just keep getting asked to do, and they're big sessions with. So it's like top art. line,
0: top line type stuff.
1: Top line, but also bringing music. Right. Like the same synthesizer I've learned to make music on, I bring that synth and I make little sequences on it. And really, I've been yeah. It's here. It's here. It's here. It's in the bedroom. I'll show you on the way.
0: All out. of these places you've gone, you've still kept it. Yes. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um well it's so special to me and it's it's proving its worth. Um so it feels nice to walk in these rooms and you know, I wouldn't have been able to do this two years ago. I would just wouldn't have the self confidence. I would be wildly insecure. Um and it's still Am insecure. Like I still walk into these sessions, like, oh my God, like who's gonna be in here? You know, you walk in some of these places, there's twelve people and you don't you've never met any of them. Yeah. And you're just told to go there and you have the gate code and you walk in, I'm holding the synth under my arm, and I'm just like, Hi, I'm Johnny. And twelve people means twelve egos, and everyone wants to write the top line and everybody, you know. Yeah. But i've I've learned that i I can get if I can get through the first half hour even if it feels hellish, like usually things kind of fall into place and um and then you're right every time I leave i've like learned something about myself it's the most it's the thing i've held away the longest you know like i've been told since i've been in music that I should be doing top line writing. And my publisher has been pushing me to do it for years. Um, But I've always been worried about the human interaction element and the egos and or just not being able to produce on the spot and all this stuff. Uh, Yeah. But being being more centered, being more comfortable with who you are, it really goes a long way in those situations, you know, and you get through one. The next time it's difficult, I I just remember the time before. I said, okay, it was difficult before. It sucked, and it got better. Like, I didn't die, and actually, like, we made something wonderful. And so I kind of try to remember those good moments, like, where where I got through the struggle. Um, And I try to apply that, like, with everything in my life. Like, something's not going well. Like, I've been here before. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, even if I don't see it right now so it's just a way to survive and, and hopefully thrive, hopefully thrive one day. Um,
0: I think you're thriving right now. Yeah.
1: That's that's the thing. That's the thing. You're mid thrive. This is exactly (laughs) the issue for me. It's like, you look around and you're like thinking about (laughs) my life
0: furniture. I'm sure people can hear the. the
1: Yeah. There's a little here. You don't have
0: much furniture A couch and a table. I think, I mean, you know, we've known each other for a minute now, and you seem to be doing great. I mean, you seem to be doing great.
1: That's the thing. Like, I'm just waiting to actually believe it myself. Yeah. You know? I just sometimes feel like I am so wildly sensitive. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. No carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become
2: senwa saga hellblade 2
1: play it now with game pass
0: you know too sensitive or just sensitive enough the debate within johnny pierce rages on thanks again to him for inviting me over and you can head to the drums.com to see all of his upcoming dates I'm heading back to Lollapalooza next weekend, and as I was thinking back to previous occasions I've attended that festival, I remembered a summer in 2008 when I was reporting on it for Rolling Stone and got to interview Jack White and Brendan Benson's band The Raconteurs when they were just a handful of months away from having Surprise released their sophomore album, Consolers of the Lonely. So we talk a bit about that strategy in the second half of this excerpt, and about the explosion of massive festivals in the first part of it. Plus, worth noting, Raconteurs just put out a new album called Help a Stranger just a few weeks back, their first new one in more than a decade. There's like a zillion festivals now. It's, no. like it's, it's just like an explosion. It seems even so more was. between last year and this year. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is a good thing in general for fans or for artists to have to have a, a more of these kinds of festivals to choose among here in the States? Uh, I think
3: yes and no, sort of. Uh, yes, it's good to be able to see all, all those bands in one place and you can go with your friends and it's a relaxing time and get turned on to things you've never seen before. From the band side of things, from the business side of being in a band, it's starting to become like fast food in the ghetto. You know, you can't resist it. They kind of offer you this three-dollar happy meal, and you, you gotta feed your kids. So, yeah, I mean, it's this kind of things. These corporations are all jumping on. I mean, we're on the Bud Light stage, for God's sake. And it's like uh, they offer you this sum of money where. We have to plan our year around these, whether we like it or not. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, we, we had a lot of plans when we put the album out so quickly that yeah. did, well, things that we wanted to do, and then the offers from festivals started coming in, it's really it's almost impossible to say no. Yeah. Because it just pays for all your equipment, and the road, and the storage, and all those things. Like, you get knocked out immediately, and the whole territory of, say, you go play, play Belgium, you play whatever that festival's called. The Worked the, Workter, yeah. Work yeah. Which we play with Radiohead, actually, also. Awesome. They uh yeah they, have a, you know, they sort of have a
2: monopoly on touring. I mean the festival, I don't know the sponsors. I guess they once again they've kind of they've taken over. But not to mention that it's also it's also just sort of that kind of global you know, globalization thing that is so ugly. I mean I think like I'd rather get a cup of coffee you know at Joe's coffee shop than have a Starbucks. And, you know yeah. every every 30 feet or something so it's that's or it's like a Walgreens kind of or Costco like you know you can get everything under one roof you know
3: yeah
2: which is not you know I, I'm not even sure why I mean because I, I love Costco but <laughs> yeah but uh and you know Starbucks is sometimes you know godsend when you're in the middle of you can't get a decent cup of coffee somewhere but so I'm not sure how I feel about it but it is it's definitely not attractive to me it's not headed down it's that
0: yeah it does feel greed. like it's like a it's an oversaturation is starting to happen mm-hmm. um, do you do you do anything differently when you're putting together a set for a, an audience that that maybe is like more of a festival goer than they are a tour fan of course yeah of
3: course so, uh, it's always important to recognize the room you're in and really to deliver the most powerful thing you can at that at that time you know? It's harder to pull off certain things, especially, for, you can say a lot. a big percentage of the crowd, no matter who you are, if you're a prince, you go out there and there's a big percentage of people who've never seen you before. So uh, you have to, yeah, make up your mind, decide your song based on that. My
2: or- thing about it is, my, my theory about festivals is, I'm just kind of catching on to this now, is that what works really well are mid-tempo stuff, Is mid-tempo stuff, unless you're like Metallica or Raging as a Machine or something. You know, when we play, like, super hard songs or rock songs, you know, fast rock songs, you know, I I mean, generally speaking, people don't really, I think it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't translate or something. If you play, like, you know, obviously if you play, like, these really small, meek, you know, like, whatever, slow acoustic acoustic songs, that doesn't translate either, but these, it's
0: that middle, mid-tempo
2: kind of those things people love it it's so weird
0: yeah I was thinking about that because I was just up at this Pemberton festival in Vancouver and Tom Petty played and I think that you know so many of his songs are mid-tempo oh, it like totally, works yeah. perfectly totally. for like sing along. works outside and, for something yeah. like that it's like this it's easy going it's yeah, a, it's, yeah easy it's just going. like you know have a
3: beer kick back it's like you're at a barbecue or something and, yeah no, but, you, for slower or fast you have to concentrate
2: more yeah in a sense and I don't think they're in it for I don't think you know I think that the people are, are really just kind of Having a good time Hanging out And you know I don't know actually I've never been to a festival Well No I went to Lollapalooza I guess once
0: but How, how like, long like ago 10, was that? 90, like mid 90s Do you remember who was, who was headlining? <clears throat> the only thing
2: I remember oh, I think May Oh man No I don't oh, I remember <laughs> Jim Rose The Jim Rose Freak Show Was was.
0: I think that, that may have been were... The year that, that It was Sonic Youth and Hole Cause I oh, went that, that year right. Yeah in yeah, yeah, Pavement yeah, yeah and yeah, like yeah, Cypress Hill and stuff it, right? yeah, yeah. the second or third year what was that? I think it was like the third year or something yes yeah, so it like a punab you know punab yeah so looking back in hindsight from this this you know idea of just putting the record out fast mm-hmm. do you feel like that was that you're happy with how that went and will you do that again just get it out there it's
3: hard to say what what we can be happy with and what we what can we what we learned or what we i, I haven't we haven't really de- determined it yet. It's sort of, uh, there's certain things that we went into before we even told anybody. It's like, well, we know that this is not like, you know, if if you don't hype something, you take a hit. You know, you definitely take a hit. We knew that. So going into it, uh, it was kind of like, are we prepared to just take a hit, like from the get-go? I'm like Yeah, we are, because I think it's just time to really just, you know, it's our second album. It's a good time for us to experiment and see what makes sense and what doesn't. There's a lot of things you just kind of go through the process, like, okay, you finished your record, okay, now it's being mastered, okay, guys, we're going to start setting up the three-four-month plan. Yeah. It starts to become this communist thing, and you're like, you, you're like, oh, really? I mean, as soon as you're done mixing a record, I mean, I just kind of take this big sign, like, last thing you want. here do we so- go, yeah. you know, here we go. Oh, the <laughs> last thing you want to do is start talking about it. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like,
2: you've Spirit. made it, you're excited about it, you, you know, you just can't wait to show it, play it for people, get out there and play it on stage, and, and you're just... And I have to talk about it. Talk about
3: it. <laughs> yeah, it seems strange. You'd I'm almost sorry. think that <laughs> No, 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 no. no, no. he's—he he, it's later now, though. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. better now. Which yeah. was well, one of the points was to do the do the promotion after we went yeah. out and played and all of that. Because I mean, it's, uh, we kind of. Uh, this is of course the most popular question for the band now, so it's hard to give a, a quick and easy answer for it because there was so there's so many components involved in deciding to do that. I mean, it goes from 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 the way of. Ideas about playing songs live before the album comes out, so people have YouTube clips and they're already basing their judgments on what the album is compared to this crappy cell phone version of something from yeah. Cleveland. You something know what I mean? Like, yeah. So you know, you, like you take those little things, and then you go all the way to the idea of you know. We pretty much cut out the
2: middleman. That's all. We just, yeah. I mean, and that's probably and the middleman. To be honest, the middleman is 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 coming obsolete. I mean, the fan is know. cutting out the middleman on their yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. So we decided, okay, you, let's you and I, we'll just, we'll deal with each other. On, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we don't need to, like, go through. We gave the the fans the album wholesale. We brought them to the
0: factory. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Have you heard that, oh, ever oh. heard that story? You've probably heard the story about, um, about Punch, Bob Seeger's manager, old manager, Punch Andrews. Punch Andrews, yeah. How like there was some live album that was supposed to come out and the label was all like stalling, and this is when like the, the manufacturing and the like label offices were all and he somehow just went in and got, and like talked sort of talked them, them into yeah. ma- like oh, just pressing, pressing the record, yeah. like ahead of schedule. Oh, and that's so sort of so <laughs> what it reminded me of when you guys did that. I was oh, like I was like, Oh, it's an old school Detroit manute. Okay, yeah, so I'm nerding out pretty hard at the end there, but I gotta be me, right? And that brings us to the end of episode 30 of LSQ. Thanks again to Johnny Pierce, Jack White, and Brendan Benson. And thank you for listening. You can always reach me with questions and feedback on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. I'm excited in the coming months to bring you episodes with Laura Jane Grace, chairlifts Caroline Polachek, Kevin Drew of Broken Social Scene, Stephen Malcomus, and Interpol's Paul Banks, among others. Subscribe if you haven't done that yet, and I'll look forward to talking to you next time.